Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to another episode of Drive Into the Baskets. I am Mike. Hope you all are doing super well today. Recording this pretty late on Wednesday nights. Like I've said in the past, if there's a game on a, on a Wednesday evening, I'll typically just uh, post pretty late at night or early in the morning on Thursday or at some point in the morning on Thursday. I'm on Mountain Time, so I know probably a lot of you on Eastern Time, so probably uh, equates more to late morning, occasionally for me early afternoon, depending on how my schedule looks. So yeah, recording this at about midnight on Wednesday night because I did procrastinate a certain amount. In any event, uh, just a few hours after the Timberwolves game here. So let's uh, just start by discussing uh, the last few games and tonight's in particular. And so one of which was a win, which just absolutely skyrocketed the Pistons' win total by 33%. You know, that's pretty impressive stuff. Okay, jokes aside, it was still fun to get a win. Absolutely. So... Uh, just uh, a quick note about post-game stuff. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, consider having a look at my Substack. It's uh, driveintothebaskets.substack.com. I actually put up some really extensive post-game analysis with a bunch of video for every game. Uh, it does take me a couple of hours <laughs> for for each article. Uh, thankfully, I've got a certain amount of discretionary time at the moment, and I've really been enjoying doing it. But it's always nice to know that people are reading it. So consider checking that out. So... Uh, you know, all that said, I don't really feel like getting too much into into games. You know, like it was Friday, today's Wednesday. The, the Rockets game is on Friday. It was uh, it was a really disappointing game in the context of I think it was winnable. And you folks have heard me talk plenty about Monty Williams, so I'm I'm going to try not to let that characterize uh, these episodes going forward. Bad coaching is something that just absolutely bugs it just bugs me to an extreme degree in any sport. I, I just hate to see a team dragged down because its coach is just uh, incompetent for reasons I don't understand. Yes, these are professionals. At the same time, I think coach knows best or general manager knows best or whatever else is. I mean, I think that's that's provably false. I think there have been bad coaches and bad executives since the dawn of organized sports. Well, they weren't called executives back then, but whatever the events, I mean, we've seen even, you know, you look back like the last 10 years, even the last few years, and in any given sport, there are guys who flunk out every year because they just don't have what it takes. And certainly Lions fans. Uh, I'm not a big Lions fan. I'm real happy for all Lions fans, by the way. If you're a big Lions fan, especially if you've stuck with this team through thick and thin, I'm real happy for you, uh, you know, that, that you got to see the Lions uh, break the, the playoff wind drought. You know, it's, you know, all, all the kudos in the world for sticking with that team. I know it's been uh, it's been a real tough road. So... Uh, but yeah, if you're a Lions fan uh, and you've been one for a while, you've seen a lot of bad coaches. You've seen some bad general managers. You've seen arguably the worst general manager possibly in the history. Well, one of them. I don't know the history of the NFL too well, but he's certainly one of the worst general managers in the modern era in the NFL as Matt Millen. So we all know that just because these guys are professionals doesn't mean they're competent and doesn't mean that that we can't make some criticisms of them that may be very valid. Certainly, a Monty Williams, whom I feel has done an atrocious job this season. So, but that said, I think like coaching is supposed to give you a your coach a good coach will give you a better chance to win, regardless of the roster. Like you see, this is an extreme example because the guy's the best in the business. But you look at Eric Spolster, who's able to take rosters which are really not that impressive and make them drastically more than the sum of their parts. You know, take uh, a guy like Duncan Robinson who on most teams would be, you know, just a, a good shooter and a defensive liability and get the absolute most out of him and hide him on defense like nobody else could in the, in the NBA. Your good coaches will make your team more than the sum of, the, sum of its parts. Excuse me. Your average coaches are, you know, not going to go either way and your bad coaches are going to make your team worse than it is, worse, worse than it should be, you know, less than the sum of its parts. The Pistons are on the third coach in a row who does that. It's super frustrating for me. I've got severe bad coaching fatigue. I thought we were going to get a solid, you know, even a good regular season coach coming into the season, and it's just been instead a complete nightmare. So Pistons have lost a lot of close games. At this point, they're 1-12, in 12, I believe, in games in which uh, they were within five points with two or three minutes left. I don't remember which. So uh, winnable games. And Monty Williams seems to do every everything he can to lose these games. You know, just just between bad play calls, bad player utilization, um, just letting the offense completely fall apart. He's he's just been horrible, and and that's after um, I think Stan Van Gundy 
as much as I think he was a terrible coach. Uh, I've come to the conclusion that Monty's worse in part because I think it's willful to a degree. But he was probably the best out of the last three coaches in the late game, which is uh, kind of an indictment of Dwayne Casey and, and Monty Williams because Dwayne Gundy was by no means actually good in the late game. He was actually pretty darn bad. Uh, it's a meaningless distinction, and maybe time has kind of uh, dulled the memories a little bit because certainly Van Gundy was, uh, I mean, like 2016-27 was the lowest point for me as a Pistons fan. I've been, I came back to the Pistons in 2014. And, yeah, that's another discussion. Y'all don't want to listen to me talk about Stan Van Gundy, I'm sure. But th- this is one of those games in which, because in part because of the bad late game coaching, and in part, just because as a coach, you do a lot of stupid things, you bleed points, and those points make a difference. In today's NBA, I mean, every possession matters, and every point matters. These teams have got things down to a science, and you just can't be doing things that bleed points. And Monty Williams, you can count on almost invariably to do things that are unambiguously stupid, multiple things that are unambiguously stupid on any given night this season. So, I mean, Jalen Duran did really struggle in this game. Uh, he just, the guy's really in need of some seasoning. He got murdered by Sengun, in part because he just lets, he just let the guy just push him around, which, which shouldn't be happening to a guy as big as Duran. And, and on offense, he did some, unfortunately, Andre Drummond-like stuff, just, just looking for bad shots for himself that he couldn't make. He was doing that against San Antonio as well. So he had a rough time. Um, yeah, late game was a nightmare. The last two out-of-timeout play calls that that Monty Williams made, including, uh, you know, including the final play call. No coach in his right mind would do what Monty Williams did, which is basically you got six seconds, six seconds left. Excuse me. You have time to run a legitimate play and get yourself a good shot. That is just unambiguously true. And what he did, he said, uh, apparently, this is what he said, because everybody else on the team was not moving. Like uh, Alec Burks after the inbound just walked very gingerly to the three-point line. So I think it's can be said with a high degree of confidence that the play for Jaden Ivey was, here, Jaden, we're going to pass you the ball uh, behind the half-court line. Just go and do something while your teammates all stand still, which is a criminally stupid out-of-timeout play. That's basically outright negligence. And the out-of-timeout play before that with about a minute left was, you know, Jaden go out there and dribble along the baseline or something into multiple coverage and pass it to Isaiah Stewart, who's then going to pass up a three. And, and try to dribble in, and any time Isaiah Stewart dribbles in, uh, things are very, very likely to go wrong, and they did. So that was real bad. Um, it, it was good to see Marvin Bagley back instead of instead of James Wiseman. That was a real breath of fresh air. It didn't last, um, though. Who knows what we're going to get now? We'll talk about that a bit. You saw that, of course. Didn't see any Wiseman tonight against Minnesota. Uh, Jade Navi finally got some run as primary handler, which should have happened long ago, but Monty Williams just seems to hate him. Uh, and, and just not care how that impacts the present or the future. He said after the game that, oh, we had this big organizational meeting where it was pointed out to me that I hadn't done this with Jaden, and, you know, I just have to own that, or I have to eat that. That's on me. Of course, he said, you know, it's just his latest permutation and an endless line of that's on me's, and that's my fault, and I need to be betters, which have absolutely no meaning. In my opinion, nobody should listen to what Monty Williams says. He has been shockingly dishonest and, and just insincere with the, with the media and, and therefore with the fans. Uh, and this was just, you know, the latest. There's no way that Monty Williams is this stupid. They just say, oh, well, I, I just didn't try that, uh, you know, and, and I really should have. Even when Jaden Avi was playing from the bench and you had these horrible, these all-bench units that failed in large part because they had delete handlers and nobody could penetrate. Well, Jaden Avi could penetrate, but he was relegated to standing in the corner. He was denied the opportunity to do it even then. Like the, the amount of time he has spent, he had spent as lead handler before this game. I think possibly genuinely could have been less than a minute you know maybe less than five minutes uh, it's just it's just been unbelievable and uh, just much worse players Killian Hayes for example who has been passing the ball well lately and not turning it over safe with the ball again we've been over this or I've been over this plenty he's still such a horrendous scorer that he's, he's not a viable NBA player and still can't break down NBA uh, can't break down defenses either I noticed that early in the season he was actually driving into contact for the first time in his NBA career uh, and or at least in a very long time. I don't remember what he did in the late stages of his rookie season. Maybe he did it a little bit back then. But last season, no. And in this season, in the season before that, no. And this season, early on, yes. And then just stopped. So uh, Monty has just marginalized Jaden Ivey at every turn, everywhere he possibly can. It has been completely arbitrary. And it's bad for the present because Ivey's a good player. And it's bad for the future 
because Ivy's development is very important to this organization. And confidence is, is important, too, and getting stomped on by your coach is definitely not good for that. And it's been completely inexplicable, inexplicable, excuse me, and completely inexcusable and incredibly arbitrary and has no point at all. So, yeah, Monty Williams, I, I think a big organizational meeting, and it was pointed out to me that it didn't do this, is can be pretty confidently translated as I was told that I had to, just as he was almost undoubtedly told that he had to put Ivy in the starting lineup and then that he had to give Ivy a big role in December. Otherwise, the guy just rolled out of bed one day and said, oh, hey, you see this player whom I just haven't really been giving usage to. I haven't let him handle the ball. I haven't given him a big role. I've been exiling him to the bench for no apparent reason. And sometimes he's the 10th man. Uh, oh, yeah, I think it's time for him to just suddenly go back in the starting lineup and actually get to do things. No, I'd say that's pretty much impossible. So, uh, you know, and, and we have heard that the front office has not been happy about how he has handled Jaden Ivey. I think that was the first time they told him you have to do this. I think that he was just operating with an exceptionally long leash that a first-year coach would not have had. Um, I think that's why he did certain things he did, because he knew that he could. And again, I don't think he really cares all that much about doing a good job. So that was the first time, and that means that this was the second. So twice the front office has had to intervene to stop him from doing something that's unambiguously stupid. In any case, Ivy got to handle the ball for the last eight minutes of the game. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, but the guy has a lot of talent in terms of attacking the basket and breaking down opposing defenses. This guy is arguably a top-five athlete in the NBA on the drive. He doesn't have like the nuclear jumping ability that John Morant does, for example, but in terms of his just ability to turn on the afterburners, and, and just blaze his way past defenders to the basket and draw defenses because defenses are very respectful of him on the drive because if they're not, he's going to get past them. I mean, he, he can do this as a, as a primary handler. I think he's still best suited to be a secondary handler. But at this point, I mean, he's the best option by mile. So it was good to see. Um, the, the game as a whole was, of course, frustrating because the Pistons really could have won that. And you know, it's it's nice to get wins, <laughs> you know, for the players and, and for the fans, and it's certainly for the players. I don't doubt this has been an extremely brutal season for them. And again, Pistons 1-12 in late games, and these are games that I think would have been winnable with better coaching. Better coaching that would not have cost them points across the course of the game, and better coaching in the late game. And again, it's just been frighteningly bad in terms of late game coaching. Like, you, you would almost swear at times... Uh, or I feel this way. It's like I almost swear at times that he's trying to lose games because I don't think a competent coach is, could ever be this stupid. And uh, I don't think Monty Williams devolved. The only way I could I could explain rationally, aside from him just not caring or wanting to get fired, uh, how he has devolved from last season when he was a very competent, if limited coach, you know, you know, not like a top-tier coach by any means, but certainly competent into the complete incompetent nightmare that he has been for the Pistons this season is brain damage. I think we would have heard about that if he just whacked his head really hard on something, you know, hard enough to really impair his cognition because I just don't see any way, any other route to, to his, his you know, just is just decline into this horrible coach. And yeah, again, I, I think the guy just doesn't really care. I think he didn't want this job in the first place and, and took it because Tom Gores, who really should know better as such a successful venture capitalist, decided that the best way to secure an employee who doesn't want to work, who doesn't want the job, and maybe particularly doesn't want to work for you, is to offer him larger and larger bags of fully guaranteed cash until he says, well, man, it would be stupid for me to say no. That's really not a way to find yourself a dedicated and motivated employee. Uh, I think that that's what happened to an extent with Dwayne Casey, who had said that he had wanted to take, on, take time off, and he got a, a pretty considerable contract from... Uh, you know, from the Pistons. And, you know, he said at the time that he was sold on the vision that Tom Gores laid out. I think that's kind of unlikely, given that uh, I have no doubt that Casey could interpret that that team, had, the roster had severe problems. But, you know, he wanted to take time off. He took the money and he did what you would expect, which is do the job to the best of his ability. Dwayne Casey never did any less than his best. He was ultimately at this stage of his career, arguably earlier as well. As he, had, he had a lot of top-tier talent back then, not really suited to coach a team that wanted to win, which was the case in his, in his first season, and helped lose the Pistons a lot of close games through the first three years of the rebuild, which wasn't the worst thing in the world by any means, but I, I strongly doubt was actually intentional on his part. But he did the job to the best of his ability, constantly, at all times, by all accounts, a super hard worker, and that has not been the case with Monty Williams, to say the least. 
has been a complete nightmare and has done far, far more things wrong than he has done right. So this was one such game uh, in the, you know, the Rockets game that was absolutely winnable. I think quite a few of the, the Pistons close games have been winnable uh, in which he was the difference in terms of the things he did during the game and things he did at the end of the game. A drop defense game, for example. As this has been largely done with Jalen Duran, and it's the clunkiest drop defense you could possibly field. It's basically, well, uh, a opposing team runs a pick and roll, and Jalen Duran, I just want you to back off so far that you can't really do anything if it's a good shooter. It's not player-specific. Like in this game with Fred Van Vliet, same thing happens in the previous game against the Rockets. Fred Van Vliet is like a 36% pull-up three-point shooter on high volume. This is a, a key weapon for him, and it was basically just given to him. You know, like I get that that you had to cover Sangoon on the on the uh, the pick and roll otherwise, but you don't just give that shot to Fred Van Fleet and just let him do that wide open. He's even largely efficient on on, on wide open mid range jumpers, I believe. They gave that to him as well. Like if you're going to run that sort of scheme, you want to only drop so far as you'll be able to, uh, you know, find a happy medium so that you can contest the right, you can contest shots, uh, you know, the best of your ability if you see it coming. And, and you don't want to drop on players who will actually be able to take advantage of that. So things like that. And, and this time around, it wasn't just Duran. It was, it was Bagley and it was Stewart as well. Uh, this was not a good team to do that against. So uh, moving on to the Wizards game, which was felt like much more of a win than, geez, I just spent way too long talking about the Rockets game. Moving out of the Wizards game, yeah, which felt much more like a, like a genuine win than, than the game against the Raptors which the Pistons almost threw, only won by two points against the team that was playing exhausted and had gutted its rotation earlier in the day. In this game, the Pistons were playing without Cade. They're playing without Boyan. And you know the only player whom the, the Wizards were missing was Taco Bell superstar uh, Johnny Davis, who needless to say has been horrible in his NBA career thus far. The Pistons came away with the win nonetheless. They led for the vast majority of the game, including the entirety of the fourth quarter. And they ended the game with enough of a lead that collapsing was not an option. So this was just very, at least for me, very refreshing to watch. Alec Burks, who has really turned it on of late after a brutal, just an absolutely brutal slump, a brutal slump that was a very big problem because the front office had loaded so much of its shooting into he and Boyan. And then so it was a really big problem when he wasn't shooting well from the bench, when he was shooting badly from the bench. He went absolutely nuclear for a career high. He just, he just could not be stopped, which the Pistons really needed without Cade. They're going to win if they were going to win a game, even against Washington. Jalen Duran had a bounce back game, twenty and nineteen, eight of eight from the field. Uh, it's impressed me how Duran has done more scoring in transition this season. I mean, he can run the floor pretty well, and he's got a decent handle, like a surprisingly good handle that I wouldn't have seen coming. He's he's able to do some attacking the bat. He's able to attack the basket to a degree against centers and one on one coverage. He's just got to pick his battles there, which he didn't against the Spurs. And his touch this season around the basket has drastically improved. Last season, he really struggled on layups. And in my opinion, the only real point of failure for him was going to be him being a uh, just a bad scorer around the basket and bad from the free throw line. His defense has certainly been worse this season than I anticipated, but uh, that, in terms of just touch around the basket, is most certainly no longer a concern. He's made enormous progress. Has been doing some passing lately as well. I feel like there's that could be unlocked more. But it's not really going to happen under this coach. Jaden Ivey got more run as a primary handler. Struggled in the first half, but really slowed things down in the second half. And I think it was pretty good. There was less Killian Hayes because Ivey was handling the ball more. Asar Thompson, with Isaiah Livers gone, actually got to do things. And, and had a pretty good game, turns out. And I'm being very sarcastic here. That, you know, who, who would have thought that actually fostering the confidence of, of a rookie on your team rather than just completely forgetting about him and shoving him into a corner where he can't contribute. And more or less on offense is just going to take a certain number of threes and miss all of them. You know, who knew that fostering confidence was, it was a good idea. You know, who knew that, that this would be, this is a good thing for your rookies. Asar looked immediately like the hyperactive player he had been earlier in the season. Uh, he had just been buried for quite some time uh, by Monty Williams in a way that is not helpful to the team. It's like with Ivy, not helpful to the team but to a lesser extent. Not helpful for the team at all and not helpful for development at all. Is giving that usage to in, in pretty big minutes or in splitting the minutes at least with, with Isaiah Livers, who's... I'll, I'll talk about that trade in a little while. So uh, definitely addition by subtraction in this game and hope to see more of that from, from Asar, though. 
that, that kind of backswirled a, a little bit against the Timberwolves. And, and Monty was not terrible for the first time, maybe this season. Like even those those early two wins against the the Hornets and and the Bulls, the Pistons had no business blowing them out, especially with the starting lineups they were fielding, which were just awful. You know those teams were both reeling at the time. The Bulls have made quite a bit of progress uh, without Zach Levine, whom, uh, if you believe some sources, I don't think we've necessarily gotten this from a legitimate source, but there's well, Woolwich told us there's not much of a market heard elsewhere that you know they uh, that the Bulls might have trouble moving in for expirings. I don't know if that's true, but the guy has paid 50, he's owed, I think, $150 million in the next three seasons. He scores a lot of points, but is a ball stopper and kind of less than his stats on offense. He plays pretty bad defense. He's got a questionable attitude. And he's an athleticism-dependent player who's getting close to the age of athletic decline and very injury-prone, has lost a certain amount of his athleticism already. And as we saw with Blake Griffin, I mean, you can, repeated injuries can really eat away at, at repeated lower body injuries can really eat away at your athleticism to a degree, of course, with Blake that ultimately got him out of the league in his early 30s. Um, Isaiah Stewart. Uh, yeah, let's, let's not get too deep into it. Uh, just something I do want to bring up, though. Marcus Sasser's usage. Marcus Sasser is not really a lead handler. Like, maybe he'll develop into it, but as, as I mentioned, I really don't believe that your average 23-year-old four-year NCAA player who didn't really play that role very well in the NCAA is going to find that second gear. I'd really prefer him to be back in a role where he's he's on the floor with another handler and is just the shooting specialist rather than him dashing around and just taking a bunch of bad mid-range pull-ups. And then finally, James Wiseman back in the lineup. Fortunately, that didn't last. So finally, let's talk a bit about tonight's game against the Timberwolves. And I will say this, with Kate Cunningham out and going up against one of the best teams in the league, I think I was pretty satisfied with the fact that the Pistons just kept it close for for the majority of the game. That Jaden Ivey got a very significant amount of run as the primary handler. He had a great game on offense. You really just see what he can do on the way to the rim. And last season, actually getting to the rim and scoring there was difficult for him. You know, it was very counterintuitive that he had troubles with that. But he's just improved a, a tremendous amount. So he did very well this game. He even scored well from three. Yeah, he just uh, he, had, he had a very good game on offense. Still continues to have his issues on defense. Like I've said, it's not, I don't think it's something you really worry about unless it's still happening halfway through season three. Uh, Stewart struggled again. Stewart, here's the thing about Stewart. I'm not going to get into my rant about Stewart at power forward again, but uh, there are some things that he has his strengths. Handle, touch around the basket, especially in the drive, and the ability to beat opponents off the dribble are not among those. Uh, every time he drives in, uh, not so great things are likely to happen unless he has a wide open lane and in the last two games that has been an issue he tries to do too too much i don't like the possibility of a player you know it, it, it's just the possibility of a player improving a handle that's that bad i think is is fairly remote uh jaylen duran i thought you know he had struggles on defense but you know he's he's a man inside he, he actually did a pretty good job with gobert on the boards he's got this nice floater that he's he's developed which he flicks over uh, over centers who are good rim protectors, Gobert included. So I thought he did pretty well. Uh, no James Wiseman. Uh, Mike, Mike Muscala got those minutes instead. And and just James Wiseman is just such a sub NBA player. It's like cause for celebration when James Wiseman does not it does not make like an overt screw up for an entire half, or when he makes genuine NBA basketball plays. But you know even when he's not screwing up, I mean just he's so horrible at the little things like positioning and setting picks and making sound decisions which he continues to be terrible at. And I think the theory that he just needs seasoning is starting to sort of lose potency uh, because he's about as, as dumb on the court this season as he was last season. So Muscala, nothing really big. And I wish that they had used him as a spacer a little bit more because he can shoot. His percentage is bad this season, but it is dragged down by pull-up threes. He's been decent on catch and shoots, though he really hasn't attempted many shots at all this season. I mean, he's been a very low usage option uh, for the he had been a low usage option for the Wizards, and yeah, so I, I, I was just oh, and Asar sort of got to do what he did last game, but there were multiple possessions in which he was just left out of the three point line in the corner. You can't do that. Every one possession, if that happens in one possession of the game, that is one too many, and it is inexcusably lazy. As you are basically positioning Asar to not only contribute nothing at all you are positioning him to do maximum damage because his defender will just hang out, literally just hang out in the paint. And if, 
I mean, they want Asar to shoot. And if a possession ends with him shooting, that is an absolutely wonderful option for the defense because he can't do it right now. He just can't. So uh, he should be in constant motion, whether that's just setting off ball screens, uh, you know, doing some, some operation on the pick and roll, cutting, crashing the boards, whatever else. He should be in constant motion. He's fast, he's athletic, and he's got the conditioning for it. And it's just unacceptable when he's left out in the perimeter and nothing is done with him. It's bad in every conceivable way. So altogether, I mean, the Pistons scored well. Defense was a struggle for both teams. And uh, the Timberwolves are significantly worse on offense, uh, excuse me, on defense when, they, you know, when they're playing away, but still pretty good. So I was satisfied with how things went overall. I was not too happy that Jaden Ivey got frozen out of the offense on like six possessions in a row, I think. And literally frozen out of the offense, I mean, standing in the corner like, like he did earlier in the season. I think that just Monty Williams, if Killian Hayes is playing reasonably well, would just love to have an excuse to, to not give that usage to, to Jaden. It's just, I don't know what his problem is. So, uh, goodness, I just spent about a half hour on, on recaps and talking about coaching. Hope you enjoyed it, as always. So let's talk the trade, which is uh, Marvin Bagley and two second-round picks, one of which is uh, going to be a pretty low pick. It's least favorable of uh four different picks and and one who knows i mean second round picks are not without value this front office has traded for a lot of them and traded away a lot of them and right now the net return is uh marcus sasser who i'm, I'm not going to include in that because he's just really yet that that's a book that's yet to be written but they've sent out well upwards of 10 picks if you just look at bagley and uh, dumping Plumley for like pick number 56, I think, or something like that. This is a pick that was almost the possibility of that producing an NBA player was so low that the pick may have just been, may as well have just been traded away and not swapped. Uh, Diallo and goodness, I'm, I'm missing on some, but uh, my count, I think the front office, I thought it was 11. I think it's more than that, 12 or 13 picks they've sent out. And second round picks, they're not without value. Like we see them traded a lot. Their assets and the grands return on all of these picks if you exclude Sazer, who again, who knows, maybe that'll turn out to be a good one, but there's just there's no knowing at this point how it's going to turn out. But all the rest of the picks, the grand return, the total has been Monte Morris and James Wiseman. And yeah, because they, the Pistons traded four second round picks and, and with Canarva Sadiq Bay and then traded Bay for Wiseman. Yeah, it's just been the two of them and they are both free agents this summer. So I don't need to rag in the front office. I think it's pretty clear they've done a terrible job. And I think, so one thing about this trade, I think it, it signals pretty definitively that a front office that has really been a failure has and has, has landed this team roster-wise in the very unenviable position it finds itself right now is being inexplicably given the opportunity to try to clean up its own mess. This is taking executives who have been failures, unequivocal failures at this point in building this season's roster and in saying, well, you may have proven yourself significantly less than competent, but we're going to give you this chance anyway. And if Tom Gores is repeating what he did with Van Gundy to a lesser extent than Dumars to a greater extent, he's expecting improvement in the near term. You do that to executives, you are setting yourself up for unwise things to happen. Happen with Dumars, you know, particularly with Josh Smith. <laughs> and uh, I think Van Gundy was very much on board. It was reported that he was very much on board by, by a reputable source by Zach Lowe. When it came to the Blake Griffin trade, he knew that he was going to get fired if there was no immediate improvement. Like when you when you put, and Joe Dumars certainly knew it, and, and was ultimately fired uh, midway through uh, through the following season. Van Gundy, of course, was was let go at the end of the season. And just putting an executive's you know front office's back up to the wall in this sort of situation is just a dangerous thing. Because if they don't generate this improvement in the near term, they're going to get fired, which is presumably the case in this situation. I could be wrong, but it certainly sounded like it, and this would be Tom Gore's MO. But I should note that I'm speculating. I, I just I think we have a, a good deal of evidence that this is the case based, just based on his, his modus operandi in the past and how just what he said in his largely incoherent press conference. Though admittedly nothing, it's possible nothing he said really had much substance to it. But if this is what he's doing, yeah, they if if they don't generate that improvement, they're going to get fired. And if they, you know, if they make some risky moves, ends up paying off, then great, they get to keep their jobs. Uh, but if they make the risky moves and they don't work out, well, they've got nothing to lose from that for the most part because they were going to get fired anyway if they didn't improve. And 
you know, they're, they're not going to be around in that case to have to deal with the fallout. You know, they'll have been fired. So you're, you're just setting up, you are setting up this uh, this front office, if, if that's what Tom Gores is doing. You're setting up this front offense, front offense, excuse me, front office to have very little incentive to care about the future and only care about the now. And, and that's that's just the dangerous thing. Though I doubt Arntel will get fired. He seems very, very well entrenched. We don't know the degree to which he actually wields decision-making power. Uh, we know that he has a certain amount of influence. We know that Tom Gores has allowed him to, you know, to uh, to basically waste a, a couple of draft picks that, that the Pistons got for trading down uh, from number 30 in 2019. And they used two of those picks to trade up to take Davidas Servitas, who had been incredibly unimpressive in a, Lithu- you know, in a Lithuanian league, uh, who happened to be, you know, and this is probably not a coincidence. It's a very unlikely to be a coincidence, given that he was just not a herald of draft pick. And there were guys taken before him, like Claxton, I don't remember who else, uh, if the Pistons, whom the Pistons could have taken with pick 30, though apparently back then they didn't want another guaranteed contract. And uh, they could have just waived Thon Maker, but, uh, but opted not to do that. And so there, there were guys taken before that who could, you know, who have been good NBA players. There were, I think, a couple of guys taken after that who have been good NBA players. But instead, we got Servetus, who was extremely unimpressive as a prospect. And I think a key to that was that Arntelm's son is his agent, or was his agent. I don't know. Who knows if that's the case anymore? So a pretty high likelihood that Tom Gores knowingly allowed Arntelm to throw away a second-round draft pick or a couple second-round draft picks for the sake of nepotism. And in that sort of situation, I think it's unlikely the guy's going to get fired. But this is just to say that I think that this is this is an understated confirmation from this trade. Though Troy Weaver is, I think, in the first year of his extension, or he's going into it next season. And Tom Gores has been, I think he has a hesitance to fire guys whom he's going to have to pay money to. Though he did it with Van Gundy. Van Gundy had a year left. So let's talk the trade, which overall was Marvin Bagley, Isaiah Libbers, and those two second-round picks for Danilo Gallinari and Mike Muscala, both on expiring deals. Now, Bagley obviously just didn't turn into what the Pistons hoped that he would be, which is, I mean, I don't know originally. Were they hoping that he would be a decent power forward, a good backup center? I've always felt like Bagley was most likely to succeed at power forward if he could learn to shoot because he's less of a defensive liability there. And, you know, maybe he could be a guy who could shoot threes and attack closeouts and, you know, do some vertical spacing and, you know, always solid to have another athletic guy in the floor. As a center, I never really thought that he had much hope just because I think he's hopeless as an interior defender and that's always going to severely erode his value. But in the event for the Pistons, I mean, he never learned how to shoot, which is going to be a complete necessity if he wants to stay in the NBA because he's going to have to find a great deal of his value on offense. I don't think he's going to make it in the NBA, but who knows, maybe he'll surprise us, but he made no progress at all as a shooter with the Pistons, and even this season was not used to shoot the ball at all. So definitely a disappointment. I think it was a fine swing to take at the time, particularly because the front office had really screwed up that season, and they didn't have a single athletic pick on the roster, so at least Cade got to spend the final third of the season with a, with an ath- more like final quarter of the season with an athletic big at least, Cade, who benefited from that, from that because he really operates in the high pick and roll, and it was completely inexplicable that the front office didn't give him a single one. And, you know, Bagley was still a player with a lot of raw talent. It just didn't work out. And then there's Isaiah Libbers, who was brought on as kind of like a high-character dude who had 3 and D potential. And unfortunately, in the first place, he had trouble staying healthy, which was sort of predictable because he had had some pretty significant injuries in the final two years of his NCAA career, one of which... Kept him out for, oh, I think, all but 20 of the games in his rookie season. So in his second season, he played more games. Wasn't really all that good as a three-point shooter. Shot, I think, a little bit upwards of 36%. And, you know, was a decent defender, but nothing special. But, you know, if he'd just been able to shoot threes at a high percentage and play decent defense, I mean, he's a solid role player and, and make the right decisions the majority of the time. He's a smart player and just be uh, useful in the locker room then. Uh, who knows? I mean, that's a useful rotation player. Unfortunately, he came into this season, number one, he got injured again. But uh, number two, he came into this season after his return from injury and was completely terrible. Like, completely and, and utterly awful. He looks to have lost a step from his most recent injury. This can happen if you have repeated lower body injuries. And he wasn't a fast player in the first place. 
losing a step meant that he was just not able to keep up on defense when he wasn't making mistakes, and he made a lot of mistakes on defense. And granted, this entire team has been playing remarkably headless defense on Armani Williams, but Livers was was just very, very bad, and he couldn't do anything on offense. You know, he was was just an absolutely and utterly horrible scorer from an efficiency standpoint, couldn't shoot threes, and was just all around terrible. Like, in, in terms of his efficiency, he was in the doldrums of the NBA. And he was he was very very bad on defense too. So it just didn't work out with him. Getting rid of him is more addition by subtraction. I get that the front office wanted to be able to maintain Gallinari and Muscal for the sake of sending them out in trades as expiring salaries, and maybe that's why Livers was was sent out. I, I think maybe for them, and they were glad to see him gone, just to get him out of Monty Williams' hands. Livers should not have been playing those minutes. I mean, he was just so bad on both ends. He even ended up starting in, in a number of games. He generally didn't play big minutes in those games, but the fact that he was in the starting lineup at all was remarkably bizarre because, again, he was just absolutely terrible. And he was undoubtedly getting burned in usage over Asar Thompson, who had much more of a future with the team. And given that Livers couldn't shoot, had every advantage over Livers, because he was better at literally everything else. And if there was no substantive difference between them as shooters, then, you know, then Asar was the superior player. But Monty Williams has a habit of playing favorites. So Isaiah Livers got significant usage, and Asar got to hang out in the corner. Uh, if that's true, that, that part of it, you know, part of including Livers was just to get him out of Monty Williams' hands, and I don't think that would necess- was necessarily a bad thing at all. It's insane that, that Monty only started playing, really actually paying attention to Asar again when this 25-year-old role player who was completely awful was off the roster. You know, then obviously that's a problem. Kind of reminds me of like a long time ago, I worked on a on a mod for a strategy game in which the AI, you know, the campaign AI was completely stupid and hard-coded. And the only way we could make it smarter was to take away its bad options. It's like, okay, well, you want to create entire armies full of peasants and we're going to get destroyed. Okay, well, we take away peasants. In this situation, it's like, okay... This is not a, a a mod of a game. This is an NBA coach being paid $13 million a year. And in order to force him to behave more intelligently, you have to take away his bad options. I mean, that's a big problem. Killian Hayes, his team would do well to get Killian out of Monty's reach as well. I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced at all that, that he won't find a way to get Killian in there somehow, even, I want to say when, but it's really if, knock on wood. You have both Cade and, and Monte Morris healthy. Like, who knows? Uh, I would assume that he would readily give Killian minutes over Sasser at the very least. So, in any case, I think it was time for, for Livers to go. He was clearly very well liked in the locker room. That's not anywhere near enough. By rights, should have been out of the rotation. It was, uh, it was just time for him to go. So, I don't think the Pistons really lost anything in terms of the players they sent out. It's obviously not preferable to spend two second-round picks to trade for a guy and then overpay him, and then trade two second-round picks to get rid of him, just for the sake of cap space. The guys who came back, I mean, maybe they'll contribute some, you know, for the rest of the season. These are not good players. These are both very washed-up players. Um, Mascal is the less washed-up of the two. Gallinari is too slow to play any position but center, but can't play defense at center. He's shooting badly overall this season. Uh, he's, he's done better like Mascal on the stunt catch and shoots. He's been fairly good. He's very bad on pull-ups. These are, these are not good players. These are players whom the Pistons will, if they make more trades this season, they'll have some expiring salaries that are smaller than Joe Harris's. Joe Harris paid about $20 million a year that they can use to facilitate that, not because the expiring salaries necessarily have inherent value, just because they are expiring. So other teams won't have to take back a salary that goes into this offseason. And uh, it, it bears mention right now that because they weren't traded immediately, they won't be able to be aggregated a salary into, you know, aggregated, so added to other salaries in a trade for until after the deadline. So you can't take Mescalo and Gallinari and add them together or add them to another salary. They can only be traded on their own. I mean, you could do two simultaneous trades, for example, like, uh, you know, with the two of them, each for players of comparable salary that fits within the limits, but you couldn't add them together and use that salary to match for, for you know, for a single player. So just to dump salary for cap space, and the issue is that cap space, while it does afford you opportunities, there's no guarantee you'll be able to use it well And what has just become an increasingly weak free agent class with Andy Noby almost undoubtedly resigning with the Nets, oh, excuse me, with the Knicks, B 
because his agent is the son of the uh, the Knicks president, Liam Rose. I think the Knicks had uh, a pretty good inclination of whether or not he would resign there. Pascal Siakam, whom I, I wouldn't have been interested in anyway. I think he's just a, a terrible fit for this team. As a guy who needs the ball a lot next to Cade, who needs the ball a lot next to Duran, who's a traditional big, Siakam can't shoot. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, there's a there's just a certain calculus to this. At a certain point, when this cap space is going to go poof, you just think, okay, what who's the who are the best players I can I can spend it on? And free agency is very weak in general. This is the era of extensions. If a team doesn't want to keep a player, a good player, they will trade him. If he is a good player, they will extend him. Superstars will take extensions and just ask out if they don't want to stay with the team. It's good players don't really hit free agency all that often. So what? Is that cap space necessarily going to be able to be used? Uh, who knows? That's the real question here. Just we have cap space. You know, as Tom Gores put it, we have cap space. We're nimble. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to do good stuff with it. So, I mean, it does mean that if a team wants to make a trade, for example, you don't have to send any salary back if you can fit it into your cap space. Uh, something I want to note about restricted free agents, by the way. So it is very, very unusual for a restricted free agent to change teams in free agency. Because, of course... The team, which holds its free agency rights, you know, assuming they, they give the player the qualifying offer, can match any offer. So a, a couple of things, you know, in a team, a good restricted free agent is, you know, team's going to want to keep that guy. You had uh, a couple of years ago, the Bulls, who had undoubtedly tampered, uh, did a, a sign-and-trade restricted free agency for, for Alonzo Ball. But that doesn't happen very often. So two things with restricted free agency. Number one, the players to sign the offer sheet. And in doing so, they're guaranteeing themselves a lower salary than they could get uh, from their team because the team that owns the bird rights, which is you know the team they've been playing for, uh, well, full bird rights if they're a first-round pick, a second-round pick, that gets a little bit more complicated. So that team, if we're talking about a max, then that team can offer five years with 8% year-over-year raises flat, not compounded, versus four years at 6%. A significant difference, and even if you're not talking a max contract, you can still offer five years versus four, and those slightly higher year-over-year uh, raises. But yeah, so the player needs to sign the offer sheet. It's not like you know it's just there, and because you know the, the player has to actually sign it. Uh, number two, what happens with the cap space? The second you send an offer sheet and the player signs it, that cap space is tied up until the other team either matches or decides not to match. Now the kicker here is that. The 48-hour clock doesn't begin until the end of the moratorium, which is, I believe, six days after the opening of free agency, uh, or seven, and then they can wait that additional 48 hours. So uh, I'm sorry, I'm just completely brain farting, whether it's, uh, it's six or seven days, the, uh, the pre-moratorium period. The moratorium is just you can agree to contracts, but you can't sign them yet. So you're waiting upwards of a week, basically, for this team to make the decision. And if... You use that cap space and the team ultimately says, well, we're keeping the guy. You have waited a very long time and basically everybody is off the market. So it's a risky thing to do. So but that, that's what the team gets out of this. It's just cap space. And can that cap space be used effectively? That's the real question. This is not a decade ago when it's like, well, we'll we have a much higher likelihood of finding good players in free agency. And is Detroit the most attractive destination these days? Uh, probably not. So we'll see what can be done possible that the that the the front office i mean this team is very very development uh it's just very 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 development reliant at this point because you're not going to get these stars in, in free agency unless you you know take a chance on the guy and he turns out to be a great deal better than you thought he would be so what they're going to find in free agency presumably is just complementary talent and you just hope that the team's big four has really developed a lot and just that that complementary talent will prevent what happened this season from happening again the the front office has done what happened this season uh, basically every season wasn't a big deal in, in 2020 2021 but ever since they brought Kate on this is just this thing with projects and not filling out the team with the essentials has really been characteristic of them and just really just fielding as much raw talent as they can you know and, and not a coherent team and, and again the fact that they flunked on all their reclamation projects really does not help things it'd be genius if they really had a high success rate but they both overemphasized those at the cost of fielding coherent rosters uh, and therefore better development environment actually and and they have failed on every single one of them. So at least you use that cap space and you can prevent what has happened with this roster, which is just inadequate in basically every capacity, but certainly in the essentials, from transpiring again. So that's a plus, and most likely they can just do that. Um, but they might end up, that cap space may end up having less impact than 
you know, then it, just the impact of it may not be, basically they may just end up overpaying players who are, who are not really worth the salary, but they're better than getting nothing. Uh, at this point, I'm just, like when I woke up on Saturday and saw that trade, I started to get a little bit worried as to what are we going to wake up to at some point prior to the deadline. Hopefully there's no panic trade. So just let's ahead of the deadline, which is February 8th. So fast coming up. Let's talk about just some trade tiers here. I hope that I didn't already do this in a previous episode. If I did, I'm very sorry. Just talking about which players in this team actually have trade value and just general considerations. So we'll talk about players who obviously do have trade value. And I'm just going to leave the, the team's big four. And it's funny to talk big four. <laughs> Three years ago, the core four was Saban Lee, Sadiq Bey, Isaiah Stewart, and Killian Hayes. Obviously, things have changed. Uh, your new big four, Cade, Ivy, Duran, and Asar. So I'm just going to leave them off the table. I don't think they're going anywhere. I Honestly, unless there's a very good trade to be made with, with Asar, for example, who doesn't really, I think, have nearly as much value as the other three. Uh, I just prefer them not to be moved. But So we'll just leave them off to the side. So speaking otherwise, players who... We'll start with players who have no value. Joe Harris has no value to anybody. He's completely washed up, doesn't have the mobility to play in the NBA anymore. Killian Hayes has no trade value. He continues to be one of the worst scorers in the entire league. Like right now, as he's going into tonight's game, of all the players in the league who had taken at least 150 shots, he was better only than Scoot Henderson, a rookie who's really struggled a lot in terms of efficiency. He's just continued to be horrible. Uh, Gallinari and Muscala, of course, have no value in terms of what they can bring on the courts. Kevin Knox, no value. I mean, he's, he's been on and off, a solid, on and off, sometimes a solid rotation player for the Pistons by the standards of this team. He's, he's really very much a, a bench player, even when he's hitting his threes. Nobody's going to give up value for him. I'd be shocked if that happened. Monte Morris, by the time the trade deadline rolls around, assuming he is back at the end of the month, as, as we've heard, he will have had exactly a week to show that he can get back to form this season. I don't think that's enough for him to actually have any trade value. James Wiseman goes without saying, not really an NBA player, uh, also going to be a free agent this summer just like Killian Hayes. Uh, players are not automatically restricted free agents. You have to get a qualifying offer. And, you know, guys whom teams just don't care about keeping, they just renounce them. And it's almost undoubtedly what's going to happen with Hayes and, and Wiseman. I doubt anybody's going to trade for them, just given how bad they have been in the NBA so far. So th- these are players who have no trade value, aside from, you know, what value there is to you know, just being expiring salary for teams who want to get off contracts. And of course, the Pistons at this point, I doubt they want to take on bad contracts for assets. I think that's it would hopefully be off the table. So that, that's when expiring contracts sometimes have some inherent value when you're willing to take those on. But I, I don't think that's in the cards. So players who have some moderate trade value, Marcus Sasser might, a team might look at him and say, okay, we'll give you a couple seconds for him. Uh, the Pistons, I don't think would be interested. They already paid a first round pick for him, uh, or at least a multiple seconds and I think three of them in order to move up and, and take Sasser in the first round. Sorry for the sniffles. I hope you can't hear these. Alec Burks has probably played his way into some value, though his postseason defense will probably be a significant concern. Boyan Bogdanovich has value, but again, his postseason defense is a significant concern and will get less run on a team that has better talent, but he can definitely still contribute to the offseason. And here's where it gets a little bit weird, or not weird, but there's a gray area, a significant gray area, in that do you really want to make the spacing on this team even worse? You want to really want to make this team even worse when it's already very bad. So, I mean, unless you're getting shooting and, and value back in the way of role players who are going to be on the team next season and can shoot the ball at least, I mean, you'll be losing out with Boyan in any case because he's actually a pretty strong scorer and you're not going to get that strong of a score in return. There's your question. Is it worth keeping these guys on the team? Uh, Burks is a free agent. I, um, I got to say, I doubt he'll be back. Uh, Boyan is only a very small guarantee next season, about $2 million. So just do you want to make this team even worse for what return you might get? I mean, if you can get back, you know, solid pro players who will actually be able to contribute this season and and will be able to contribute for this team going into later seasons, then you think about it. Does this team really at this point wants to trade for additional draft capital when they really probably almost certainly don't want to be just continuing to add young players to this team versus guys who are more established and can be more stabilizers and also guys they'll have to give minutes to? You could technically use a first-round pick, for example, if you were to get one of the Boyan trade, uh, in order to trade a pick. And though, reminder, that the stepping rule isn't what's keeping the Pistons from trading that pick that's protected, that's owned by New York until 2027. It's that New York effectively owns the pick every season 
until you know it definitively falls within the protected range. I mean, you can, I believe you could just say, well, we're trading this pick on the basis of like if it falls into the protected range. Pistons obviously don't want to do that right now, you know, given the, the uncertain future of things. But uh, whatever the case, it's basically they would not be able to just say, well, now that we have a pick in, say, 2025, we'll be able to trade our 2026 first-round pick. Is that the Knicks actually just own that pick and until until it definitively can base the Pistons. So could use a first-round pick for that, but I don't think teams are likely to surrender significant draft capital for Boyan. And in the first place, these will be teams which uh, are not going to be picking high and would most likely lottery pick or lottery protect this pick for, for subsequent seasons. Um, they, you know, if it were a 2025 pick, for example, it would probably be lottery protected in that season. Teams want to protect against the possibility they just have a really bad season. So I don't think the draft capital you get for trading Boyan is really going to be necessarily all that great. And again, are you sure that you're going to be able to do something good with that draft capital rather than just say, okay, we have another young, young player coming on? Burks, I think, will be worthwhile to keep for the rest of the season because I think the return from him would be a second-round pick or two. And again, those have value, but I think his value to this team, if he's shooting well, is greater than that. And I, I, like the team would just be even worse than it is right now if you get rid of Boyan and Burks. So that's basically where we stand. Isaiah Stewart, I think, is the player whom you'd consider likeliest to be moved just because he has value to postseason teams. as a guy who played very well in small ball situations, just a strong postseason defender who's equally valuable in drop-and-switch systems. Very smart defender. I don't think the Pistons want to lose him because he's just he's just a great guy in the locker room. I hope next season he is back playing backup center or backup center because he's just not a good power forward. And I think the book never really opened on the notion that he would be a starting forward on this team aside from uh, from the front office who made a very very bizarre decision. So I, I mean I think it's going to be a priority to upgrade it at power forward regardless. If it isn't, then the front office is completely insane. So he could be moved, but again, what are you going to get for him? You know, these are postseason teams. They're not going to want to lose guys who can, who can help them in the now. You know, for the same reason that the Pistons may struggle to, to trade for guys, solid role players who can help them in the now, because it's like, if you can shoot and you can play decent defense, you're probably a guy who can play in the postseason. So it, it just doesn't befit the Pistons to necessarily just get more draft capital in the second round or on the border of the first round, because you're not sure you're actually going to be able to do good things with that. And you just, you're not in a situation where you want to add more young players to your team. And, you know, that's, I think, about it for tonight. Um, I know that, I hope that this wasn't too rambling of an episode. Uh, sometimes I just, for the most part, I just put out, uh, write myself out an outline. Actually, sometimes I, well, you know, will spend about an hour, you know, writing up, you know, just comprehensively everything that I'm going to say. Uh, but sometimes, like tonight, when I'm, I'm just trying to keep things relatively fresh and not just talk about the same subjects that have, that have just been visited so many times, I uh, just write down uh, just a very basic outline and just kind of talk so in any case hope you all enjoyed it i uh, just want to plug one more time my blog check it out you might enjoy it i put a lot of work into it i think i'm uh, at least a, a half decent writer i would hope and in any events just as always i hope you folks are all doing really well thanks for listening i'll catch you in next week's episode